You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey there, Sean. How's it going? I'm great, David. How are you? Good. I'm good. Let's see. For our introduction, well, I know I know you've been excited about that. We uh, have hit 750 downloads, right? Yeah, it seems like we, uh, we're growing at 200 downloads a week, um, but we saw some spikes this week. So it's it's pretty cool to see. I think our um, our episode that we did last week on Odin's sacrifice in the Well of Mimir was our most successful one as of yet. And when you take into account the first seven days, so we appreciate everybody listening. It's, it's pretty cool to see that spike. Oh yeah, and and that's why I said well, yeah. Certainly, by the time we get to a thousand downloads, I'm going to edit and re-release our episode zero, where we're kind of just brainstorming and uh, fumbling with the episode. But we'll we'll record a new like introduction to it to let people know like you can start with season zero or jump into season one. You know. Yeah, I think you were doing the brainstorming. I was doing the stumbling and the ums and the I think this was from blank. And that that continues on to some of our other episodes that we actually saw published in in season zero. So maybe we'll edit those at some point too. But there's some good stuff in there and that's people might be interested to see our process, right? So that's yeah, it's the brainstorming process, I think. Anything else, Sean? How's how's your week been? What have you been? It's been a week. Um it's been busy at work, but there's just like this monotone staticness of it's busy, but I'll I'll get through it. It's it's one of those weeks where you live for the weekend, even though you don't want to necessarily live your life, like, you know, living for the weekends. So nothing too much. Some of those weeks sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm excited that this, like, this is a thing now because on Wednesdays I get to kind of break up the week and, you know, have something to look forward to midweek and then just two days before the actual weekend. So it's, it's pretty good. Um, I do have a drink of the week. It's not a beer from a brewery in Northern Virginia. It's from Richmond, Virginia, Vason Brewing Company, and it's their Ragna IPA. Is that related to Ragnarok? It's got to be. Right. I have no, it's probably, I think they do like uh, pagan themed yeah. beers. Um, I didn't actually drive down to Richmond, Virginia to get it, which is good because I-95 from DC is horrible, but they did have it at the Whole Foods in Alexandria. So I thought that this would be a good one to, to try for the podcast. Do you ever go to any of those local breweries, like do a tour? I have not actually, no. Yeah, was, when I was in Colorado, I loved doing the local uh, brewery tours. I don't know with COVID if we can do it now, but yeah. Well, in Colorado, there was a lot of breweries. The, <laughs> the beer selection in Colorado was pretty good. And there was always, uh, like, I guess, brewmasters excited to show off their product and how it's made. So, yeah. Oh, one thing I was, you were mentioning with this, was doing our recordings on Wednesday. I've been doing a bunch of reading on the runes, on the Nordic runes, because I know that's a topic mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be getting into quite soon. So I want to prepare for it. And uh, one of the things I saw, from this one book, but she was saying that a good day to do a, if you're doing like a class where you're learning the runes together as a group, Wednesday is the day to do it because that's Wotan's day. Wotan's day. <laughs> yeah. So that we do our recording. We didn't plan that. I don't think Sean knew that when we started, but uh, I saw that. <laughs> no, I actually, I didn't think about it. Um, that works perfect. That works. Yeah, it works perfect, and we got to keep doing our Wednesday recordings. I think so. It was by design, or was fa- or we were fated to do it was, so. It was fated. That's what I yeah I found out. <laughs> All right, should we move? Should I let you start introducing the topic? What we're talking about today? Yeah, so we can we can go ahead and move on to uh, our talking points of the day. We're going to be discussing Hemdal. He is considered the watchman of the gods. He's also considered the father of the social classes, um, which is primarily what we're going to be discussing today. And he's more importantly known by being portrayed by Idris Elba in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're not going to be discussing that today, but that's obviously just to put a, play, uh, a face to the name, I guess. So we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about the sources. David is going to walk us through um, chapter 27 of Gilfaganin, which is titled Hemdal. It's a title that just explains the god Hemdal. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the sources found in Crawford's translation of the Poetic Edda. 
Um, there was a few of them. Some of them are very brief, um, but the primary one is going to be from a poem called Rigsthala, and that's that describes his role as the father of the social classes. Um, so, David, go ahead and take it away. Well, uh, just having a side thoughts so that that Idris Alba character. If you've seen that movie, it's a very memorable figure because he's plated in all gold armor, right? He's got a giant yeah. sword that's like his key to the Bifrost uh, rainbow bridge that connects Asgard to all the other realms, right? Picture that image. And one of the poems will be kind of going into more detail on that. Uh, yeah. Describing Heimdall in some detail. I also have my uh, side thoughts. Um, yeah, good. So my, my joke for the week, let me make sure I do it right. So are you familiar with the, the office, that episode where um, uh, Michael Scott is like saying he declares bankruptcy and he just yells <laughs> bankruptcy. It's like, Michael, that's not how you that's not how it's done yeah <laughs> but i was, I was th thinking about that t this week when um thinking about our discussion at the end of the last episode talking about heimdall right and that yeah. idea that as i was kind of saying like so if, if he's in your brain what kind of what does he represent right you said he's sort of the guardian the gatekeeper of the of the aesir right yeah. he's, so my thought was like is he your executive function and then sean's response was actually is he more the id is he actually something lower like in your emotional centers of your brain and the the thought I had this week, where I, I don't know if anybody else, maybe somebody who's gone to like grad school in psychology will find this funny, but the uh, the reticular activating system is basically a circuit. It's not one place in your brain, but it's the circuit that involves sort of the, the messages that come in from your spine, your sensation, your emotions that react to it, and then your executive functioning, trying to keep control over all of that. So that that is your Heimdall. And so I'm declaring trademark on that. I came up with it. I don't know if that's how trademarks work. We'll ask our lawyer friends. But yeah, sorry about that. Are you saying that you're trademarking the phrase "I declare Heimdall"? No, that that, that your, your <laughs> particular activating system is your Heimdall, and I'm declaring trademark on. You know, I wish you all the I wish you all the luck in the world, there, David. I'm sure it's going to work out for you. <laughs> that's my joke for the week. Thanks, guys. Neuro neuro Norse mythological uh, neuroscience joke of the week. Yeah. It's somehow better than my joke, which isn't even a joke. I just brought up the fact that Hemdal was played by Idris Elba. So it's all good. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I like that uh, image of Hemdal. Let's see. So I said I would read a little bit of the Volspa 27, just to get you back into context we were talking about last week. Yeah. So Volspa uh, stands at 27. So it says, uh, this was the, the seeress speaking to Odin saying, I know where Heimdall hid his ear under the heavenly bright holy branches of Yggdrasil. I see a river that feeds the muddy waterfall where Odin's eye hides. Have you learned enough yet, Allfather? And so, Sean, when you found this source, where was this translation where they talked about actually it is his ear that he sacrificed into the, the well? Yeah, so I don't know. I know we discussed that briefly last week, but I know in when Odin sacrificed his eye, he gains more wisdom and you could argue that he was able to like see further. He was able to see well, more than a basic conscious mind can see. So I just thought this was interesting because with Hemdal, if like if he actually sacrificed his ear, I know he, it says that he hid his ear, but if he sacrificed his ear, what power did that give him? And you also see that Hemdal can see great distances, but he can also, and you'll see this, in, you'll hear this in some of our quotes, he can also hear the grass growing. So he can hear everything despite having potentially sacrificed or hid one of his ears. I appreciated that you found that one because I, you know, it sounded strange last week when I'm talking about uh, Mimir drinking out of eyes and drinking out of ears and things like that. But that's, I'm like, I think that's in some translations. It just sounds very strange. So, Yeah, definitely. I wanted to start with that, but now we'll go to this main part is um, from Gofagening from the Prose Edda, chapter 27, titled Heimdall. Heimdall is one. He is called the white god and is powerful and sacred. Nine maidens, all sisters, gave birth to him as their son. He is also known as Halinskidi and Golintani, 
the golden toothed, as his teeth are gold, and his horse is called Goldtop, the golden forelock. He lives near Bifrost at a place called Himmensborg. He is the watchman of the gods and sits at heaven's end, where he keeps watch over the bridge against the mountain giants. He needs less sleep than a bird, and he can see equally well by night or by day, a distance of a hundred leagues. He hears the grass growing on the earth and the wool growing on the sheep, as well as everything else that makes noise. He has the horn known as Galarhorn, and its blast can be heard in all worlds. Heimdall's sword is called Head. It is said, Himmenborg it is called, and there Heimdall rules over sacred places. There the watchman of the gods drinks in his comfortable lodgings, happily the good mead. Sorry. Um, not David, that was good. Um, so that last part that you quoted from chapter 27 of Gilfagenin, which was written by, by Snorri Sturluson of the Prosetta, and just to tie it back to last episodes, he quotes uh, poems that we also quote from the Poetic Edda in his storytelling. So that last part that you quoted was from a poem that we previously discussed. It was a different part of the poem, but that poem was Grimness Small. So that just wanted to just wanted to throw that in there. And also, you mentioned the uh, the part where Hemdal can hear the grass growing, can also hear the wool growing on the sheep, which I think is pretty cool. You also mentioned he is like dressed. I thought it was funny. He also has a grill. His teeth are gold. So maybe not a grill, maybe his teeth just naturally are gold. But why I think this is interesting is typically we get our broad stories um, that we've discussed so far from the Prosetta. And yes, you did just discuss a chapter from the Prosetta, but that chapter was more so a description than anything. What we attribute to Hemdal is primarily from the Poetic Edda in this one, um, from the po- from the poem Riggs the Law. So I think it's I think it's pretty interesting that like this one is from the Poetic Edda as opposed to the Prosetta. We're going to go into the the Riggs the Law next, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Should we talk at all about the some of the things I read about, like the significance of how like it's kind of part of the poetic Edda, but then not exactly? What we have from Rigsthula, and by the way, before I get into this, I just wanted to uh, preface something, and I also wanted to bring up an error that I made in a previous episode. Rigsthula was not from the Codex Regius, which is where we found the poetic Edda. However, it is included in many modern day translations of the poetic Edda. Rigsula actually came from a later source. So I think it was a couple hundred years after the Codex Regius was written and a couple, like maybe 240 years after Snowy wrote his Prosetta. It comes from a document called the Codex Warmanius. However, a lot of um, historians today or experts today believe that so much of the poem does come from earlier, like an earlier time, you know, maybe when the religion was practiced. This comes from a later manuscript, if that makes sense. Um, which the poet can, the same can be said of the poetic era, um, because a lot of the poems they believe were initially, I guess, verbally translated in like the eight nine hundreds, but it just was written down on the Codex Regius in the late, um, you know, twelve hundreds. The Codex Warmanius is kind of the same deal, except it was even later than that. Is, is it okay if I insert what I read about the, the Codex Warmanius uh, today? I just read it today when we were. Oh yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's a learning experience for me. So they were saying within that Codex Wormanius, basically it was another draft of what Snorri wrote, right? So it's it's the prose edda, but not the one that's in the Codex Regius, which is like a, they keep it in one of the libraries, like the royal kind of vaults, right? And they say that this uh, Rigsthula was like just a, a page that was kind of almost incomplete in the back of the book. So it yeah. wasn't even like fully in the book but it was included there. And then there's some different theories and reasons on why, even though this book was written later, these ideas might've came from 
from Norway. So before 1200, before Snorri wrote it, it, it's a very strange thing the way all the documents come together. So it's, and that's actually described in the link I'll put in this show note where it's a, a version of uh, Rigsthal. Yeah, definitely. And that's, that's what's fun. And by fun, I'm putting, I'm putting fun in quotes about, uh, like about researching all this stuff. And it is pretty interesting, but it also just means you have to take everything that you read with a grain of salt anyways, because it was written down later by Christians who maybe like interpreted a certain way. We're pretty sure that Snorri did that often, but you know, especially when you're looking at a god Hemdal, who is widely mentioned in many stories of the Poetic Edda, or like many other stories of the Poetic Edda, he's mentioned in the Prose Edda. And the primary story that we have of him is from a man- manuscript written later. It's it's you have to like again take everything from a grain of salt. So it's it's fun in quotation marks. I did want to mention really quick in an earlier episode when we were discussing the nine worlds, specifically the world of hell, I quote, I mentioned another story that was written in Jackson Crawford's translation of the Poetic Edda called Baldur's Drama. And where it's where Odin knows that his son Baldur's having crazy dreams, these bad omen dreams. So he goes down to hell to see what, what's going on. And uh, he finds out from this uh, dead series that he wakes up. I mentioned that that was from the Poetic Edda. It is in Jackson Crawford's translation of the Poetic Edda, but that also was from a different manuscript. So that's um, something I just wanted to kind of correct myself on from a previous episode. So anyway, we can go ahead and move on to Rigsthula. Again, not from the the Codex Regius, but from the Codex Codex Romanius. Um, Hemdall portrays himself as a character named Rig which is why it's called Rigsthila. So I'll go ahead and give a breakdown of the stanzas because this story talks about how he is the father of the social classes of humans. It's okay if I read like one stanza just to give people a, a sense of like what the tone of this is, but we're not going to read the whole thing because it's so long, but would that be yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah go ahead. So it says, uh, men say there went by ways so green of old the God, the aged and wise, mighty and strong, did Rig go striding. So that is the, the style of which we are simplifying because it's quite hard to make sense of, you know, going through 40 stanzas of that kind of dense poetry, right? Yeah. So I'll do my best to summarize it. Um, there's going to be some, there's going to be a couple stanzas that I do read, but no, I'll try to give my best, my get my best breakdown that describes Hemdal as the, or Rig in this case, as the father of the social classes of humans. So in stanzas one through 13, Hemdal or Rig in this case, he's traveling, he enters this this uh, couple's property, the couple, like their, their house is small. Like they, they are having like a, a pretty basic supper. Like there's nothing of value really in the house. The couple's names, according to Jackson Crawford are great grandmother and great grandfather rig. I'm just going to say Hemdall moving forward. Hemdall decides to stay with them for three nights. He sleeps between them every night and then leaves. And then nine months later, they give birth to a son who Jackson Crawford translates, whose name, according to Jackson Crawford, is slave or thrall. Um, So I'm going to leave it up to the listener to use their imagination on exactly what happened when Hemdall slept with this couple named great-grandmother and great-grandfather, but it resulted in a child nine months later. So your headcanon can go in many different directions, but I know what mine is. Their son, slave or thrall, finds a woman and marries her. Her name is slave woman or thrall woman. And they have a, lo- a lot of sons and daughters. So this at this point, if my headcanon is accurate, the grandchildren of Hemdal through his son slave or thrall, he gave birth to a lot of sons and daughters. And their names sort of, they, they are the personifications of different activities or different professions. Okay, if I read a few of them. Yeah, if you want one second. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's their 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 names are like the personifications or careers of people that you would see in like the lower class at that time. So I think that I like to think that stanzas one through thirteen go into the creation of the birth of the lower class of man that Hamdall it, it, created. It's not even jobs, right? Their names like Lumpy and Barn well, Barn Cleaner, right? Uh, the Hunchback, Shorty and Fatty and Shriek, and it's just like yeah, very. <laughs> Not names you want to name your child. They're not the best names to give your child, but that um that created, I guess, all of those those personifications. Barn cleaner could be a uh, could be a profession. So that profession was created by Hemdall's grant, or was created by Hemdall. Um, so those are stanzas one through thirteen. Stanzas fourteen through twenty three. This he does the same thing for what is what seems to be the middle class. He sleeps with a middle class couple. I think their names are grandfather and grandmother. So not great-grandmother and great-grandfather, but grandmother and grandfather. And nine months later, a son named Freeman is born. Freeman marries a girl named In-Law. They also have many sons and daughters with uh, names that would be consistent with what you think the middle class would be at that time. So we have Manful, Fighter, Brave, Swordsman, Smith, Husband, Rancher, the daughter's name, Smart, Swan, Dame, Lady, Wife, Shy, Vivacious. And so that's another class of humans that's created. Stanzas 24 through 39 does that with the upper class. He sleeps with a couple. Nine, um, nine months later, the woman gives birth to a person named Lord who marries a woman named Eagle. They give birth to a series of sons. They I think only the sons are mentioned here, but you have boy, kid, noble, heir, scion, descendant, successor, lad, nobility. And then the primary one is king. It's the important, like the hero in our story. Yeah. They, there's uh, three stanzas, stanzas 41 through 43 on King, but I did want to quote stanza 35, which again is within the set of stanzas that, decre- that um, describe the creation of the upper class. He then rode through the icy mountains of Mirkwood till he came to a hall and shook his spear, shook his shield, set his horse to a gallop and drew his sword. He started a war. He reddens the fields with blood. He killed many men. He conquered lands. Um, so I wanted to bring this up because for two reasons. One of them I'll say now is because I'm pretty sure Mirkwood is from Tolkien. So I think Tolkien, yeah. we know, took inspiration from these uh, Norse sources. And I think yeah. he got the name Mirkwood from them in, uh, in like Lord of the Rings. And so the second point I'll make after I read these three stanzas on the grandson of Hemdall King, stanzas 41 through 43 of Rigsvola. But young king learned runes, runes of fate and runes of destiny. He learned spells to save lives in dull blades, to calm storms. He learned the language of birds. He learned to put out fires, to calm sorrows and induce sleep, and give comfort in sorrow. He had the passion, the strength of eight men. Rig shares runes with him, but king tricked him. He learns them better than he, and then he earns the right to call himself by the name of Rig for his rune lore. So I wanted to bring this up because in Sansa 35, when I mentioned Mirkwood, you get this sense that Rig or Hemdall is also very, he's, he's very good at war. He read in the fields of blood. He killed many men. So this is something where you see similarities between Hemdall and Odin because Odin other, there's not like necessarily a god of something. Odin could be considered one of his things could be the god of war. So I thought that was interesting. But more importantly, in stanzas 41 through 43, 
you also understand that Rig or Hemdal is very knowledgeable in the runes. And he sort of gets beat eventually by his grandson, King, which there's something funny there, which is not fully explained. Again, maybe because this poem is not complete. But I thought this was interesting because that's also directly associated with Odin because in another story that we're going to be discussing in the next couple of weeks, it's another story regarding one of Odin's sacrifices. He sacrifices something so he can learn the runes, which is the the form of writing that they had back in the day where there was some like magical properties in doing so. Where I think this is cool and interesting is because last week when we discussed Mimir, we saw similarities between Mimir and Hemdal, which kind of led into why we're doing Hemdal this week. We also saw similarities between Mimir and Odin, or like we saw some connections, I guess is the better word, between Mimir and Odin. This week, we are seeing connections between Odin and Hemdal. So I'm wondering if there's supposed to be more of a, like a broad, like triangle of connections there. One one thing that I saw in the the version that I'll post is is one of the theories is that maybe this was written by somebody who has certainly had a lot of Irish Celtic influence, uh, even mm-hmm. if they weren't necessarily born Irish, that maybe they traveled there, you know, met a lot of Celtic people, and that possibly Rig is the name of a god for the Irish. And then there's there's somewhere in there that they're justifying why they say Rig is Heimdall, but so much of Rig sounds like Odin, right? So that mm-hmm. whatever the evidence is that says it's Heimdall, right, that that matters a lot because if I was reading the story, I think it's Odin, right? Quite a bit. Yeah. Because that Odin's shape shifting and laying between people, and then the Holy Spirit. Uh, enters them and gives them their offspring, right? That's pretty much sounds like what's happening to me. So your head canon is not that they had a three-way, it's that the Holy Spirit it's, Yeah, yeah. The, he, he just okay, went okay. between them and the Holy Spirit uh, inspired them. And that's uh, that sounds like how it went from what I read. Yeah, but no, that's interesting because if there was no name, you would assume it is Odin. He likes to get involved in other people's affairs. Yeah. He's very good at war. He wants to, you know, he, he just, he, he he's also, he's also one of the three people or three gods that created humans in the first place. Why not him also have some connection to creating the human classes, like give them an idea of how they want to live their lives. Because in like, regardless of, I guess it depends on what source you read in the Prosetta, it's Odin and his two brothers, Vili and Ve, who find those two pieces of driftwood and each one of them breathes some form of human emotion or human action into this driftwood to make them what they are in, in the poetic edit, it's uh, Odin, Honor and Lothgar. But what, like, but it sounds like one of them should be Hemdall because Hemdall kind of gives them the structure of the way they need to live their life. And I think that says they, you know, the people writing these and, and telling the stories that they're trying to make sense of how to think of these as different ideas, right? Because if Odin is just in charge of everything, it's kind of not all that interesting, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of nice to know, well, if I'm looking for this thing, I pray to this God. If I'm looking for this thing, I pray to this God. If Odin's in charge of everything, then it just gets messy, right? But it, yeah. Odin's all about like the runes and the magic. And so then this idea of like social order, let's give that the Heimdall, although he kind of has the runes, but that he gets to be responsible for whether which humans get the runes, maybe something like that. Right? Is a, yeah, one way to interpret it. But yeah, no, it, it's pretty cool. Yeah, we have I have many theories on that. We can probably discuss that after, like after all this. But yeah. um, I, I am going to briefly go over the other mentions of Hemdal that are found in poetic the poetic Edda. So real quick, one of them is called Voluspa and Skama. This is not the same as the Voluspa that we've mentioned in pretty much every episode we've done so far. So this is actually another late poem I do not believe was found in the Codex Aurelius, but it features Freya, so the Vanir goddess, speaking to a woman that I believe is described as her sister, Hinsla, not unlike the Cirrus, the dead Cirrus, who Odin awakes in Voluspa, similar to what he does in the Kodar, uh, in Baldur's drama. Not unlike that Cirrus, um, Hensla starts spouting information where, Hem- where Freya is the listener. 
So in stanza 35 of Voluspa and Scamma, there was one born in ancient times, a very powerful son of the family of gods. He had nine mothers. Those nine giant women gave birth to the noble spearmen at the edge of the world. And then stanza 37 lists the, uh, the, the names, but they're hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to do that very well. But we can maybe put that up on the show notes afterwards. Where this is interesting is uh, Gilfaganin, which you just read, David. He's mentioned as being in the edge, at the edge of the world. We know he has nine mothers, but in this portion, it says his mothers are giants. Why this is interesting is because, as we've discussed in a previous episode, is all of the Aesir are somewhat giants because once it gets to Odin, who is also 75%, he's 75% Yodan, he's like the all-father of the gods, not just the humans. So I thought that was interesting. But in another in another source, there's information that says he might be a Vanir, but that goes into the whole thing of who you were born as is not necessarily what tribe you're from, whether it be the Yotun, the Vanir, or the Aesir. One thing I'm just noticing yeah. in that, yeah, because I think that was my observation last time that Aesir is kind of just like a last name, right? It's like the descendants of the one who was de- declared Aesir and his sons and his sons become mm-hmm. the ones to call Aesir, but all their mothers are Jotun. And then with Heimdall, that he comes from the Vanir, which is generally the more like feminine fertility gods, right? That like um, Yeah, or magic, Freya, you know. Yeah, the Freya is a very powerful sorceress among that. It's all kind of about fertility, the, the feminine aspect. And then that Heimdall comes from nine women. And that's a very fascinating, right? It goes back to this idea, like somehow just a spirit was created. I don't know if they spit a pot <laughs> to create him or the different different process. But, Who knows? Uh, yeah, but, I guess your head cannon's a little bit different. They were absorbed, but he was absorbed. He was created by the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> of, but but somehow nine of them came together and they willed him into being. But he comes from the feminine side or direction, right? Indicated from both of those things, whether it's nine women or it's Vanier, something about that. Yeah, nine giant women or the Vanier, something like that. But anyway, I thought that was that was interesting. The next source was actually from Bolaspa, the one that we're familiar with. You already read stanza 27 uh, with him hiding his ears, so I'm not going to go over that one. But I thought there were two other stanzas that um, I thought were worth bringing up. Number The first one is stanza one. So Bolaspa started the stanza because it is obviously one. Heed my words. All classes of men, you greater and lesser children of Hemdal, you summoned me, Odin, to tell what I recall of the oldest deeds of gods and men. So that's interesting in itself. Again, the first, like that's how Volaspa begins. And it refers to like the listener potentially as the greater and lesser children of Hemdal, greater and lesser can be potentially attributed to lower class, like upper class. But then she starts discussing to Odin, her, her spouting lore that he woke her up from the dead to discuss. Moving on to stanza 45, so after stanza 27, the giants are at play and the god's fate is kindled at the blast of Galarhorn. Hemdal blows that horn hard, holds it high aloft. Odin speaks with Mimir's head. So I think we may have discussed this um, one last week as well. But I wanted to include that because Hemdal, Mimir, and Odin all, all feature in that one stanza. In the Galahorn itself, we also discussed last week that it's the horn that Mimir drinks out of, and it's also the horn that Hemdal will blow at Ragnarok. So pretty cool. Grimness Small, stanza 13. You actually quoted that, um, as I mentioned earlier, when you quoted the end of Gilfagani, because that's what Snorri does with some of his poems. And then a new one, which I actually am happy I found today because I forgot this part of the story. There's a poem called Thrym's Zvida from the Poetic Edda, or stanza 15. And, and the premise of Thrym's Zvida is very funny. 
Odin gets his hammer stolen. And the, of course, the only logical action is for him to, uh, to pretend to marry the, the God that, or the giant that stole his hammer to get it back. And there's, there's more to it, but I feel like that is for another episode. Cause it's uh, you said, you said Odin, but so it was a uh, Thor got his hammer. Stolen, oh, right. I'm sorry. Thor got his hammer stolen. But then it's going to be um, Heimdall helping him to retrieve it. Is that where that goes? Yeah. And it, the story is hilarious. Like, I think it's uh, Freya is also involved in that one. Loki is involved in that one. So I'm sure when we go through the series of Lo- the, of the uh, episodes I have with Loki, we're going to be discussing this a little bit further. But I didn't realize that Heimdall also plays a part in this uh, story. It's Heimdall's idea to have Thor dress up as a bride to pretend to marry this giant. So Thor's getting married, y'all. Um, the the, the so, gender bending among all the uh, all the different uh, gods, right? It's it's a, a thing you keep seeing, right? Whether it's Odin, even even Thor, one of the most the manliest of all of the uh, gods. Sometimes he needs to because it's you just got to for some reason. Yeah. Again, we're, we'll discuss this in a later episode. But a lot of people think that this was an invention by Stor- by Snorri as a Christian. It just to like you know take this like manly god of a pagan religion and say, oh well, look at him. He's dressing up as a woman. But again, we can get, get into more detail on that later. The 15 from Thrym's Zvida. Then Hemdal spoke, the handsomest of the gods. As one of the Vanir, he could see into the future. Let's put a wedding dress on Thor. Let him wear Freya's necklace, the Bringsman. Let him wear Freya's necklace, the Brisegonin. Why this is very interesting is because it specifically says that Hemdal is one of the Vanir, who are like the magical fertility gods, but then from Volispa and Skama, it mentions that he is the son of nine mothers of giants. So again, Jotun, Vanir, but he lives with the Aesir. Does that make him an Aesir because the Aesir is now his tribe? So that's it. That's that's all I had um, in, in regards to the sources from Jackson Crawford, or the poems, I guess, from Jackson Crawford's Poetic Edda. There was something as you were saying in there, and we, oh, one thing that they're, you know, they say the heed my words, all classes of men, you greater and lesser children of Heimdall, right? It goes back to that. It's, it's not entirely logical, right? They're the children. Humans were given life by Odin, right? It was the trees that then they gave, they gave life to. Yeah. But then there's this process where then Heimdall is, is laying with different couples and inspiring the, the next class of the next generation, right? So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I actually don't know what that means. I'm just thinking that that they, how they are, they both sons of Odin and sons of Heimdall, right? It somehow happens or it's a transition or something, right? They're, they're maybe learning something. Well, the, and that, that also goes into like Odin potentially being Heimdall, which is something I, I didn't see it in the source because there's clear, like in this stanza alone, they clearly mention Heimdall, but then they also, or the Cirrus mentions Heimdall, but also mentions Odin. Yeah. But, you know, how much of that just evolves naturally over time? Like, and, and I know you mentioned like Rig potentially being like sort of like an Irish version of a Hemdal type god yeah. like a lot of the gods or, or maybe they, odin right maybe he was actually their version yeah. of odin right i don't know enough but yeah well and that goes into like the fact that like a lot of the norse gods like they're very they're very similar to the roman gods and they probably just evolved over distance right. and over time to say oh well yeah like it just evolved from like saying oh this isn't apollo this is like one of the norse gods or something like that yeah. and i feel that's, like that's interesting because if rig is a celtic god you know, what similarities are there between Rig and, and Odin just across those pantheons? No, and, and as I was reading about the runes this week, because the for the god Tyr, there's a Tyr rune. And for Thor, there's a, a rune that very much is representing Thor. And yeah. one of the ideas is that, I saw this, I don't have my exact sources right now, that, uh, that Thor is probably one of the oldest Norse gods. There's like 
before they really had yeah. much, much interaction with other cultures, you know, a lot of trade and, and interaction. Thor was there as kind of their sky god, right? But then throughout the, the Indo-European language tradition, it started more, more towards India, but still kind of uh, Asia, closer to, between India and Europe. That Tyr was an important sky god for them. And you see that the language mm-hmm. traces back to, you know, the, historically, you know, archaeological evidence for that, right? Sure. And so then, but then Tyr became introduced as an idea to the Norse. And then he became, okay, so he's the sky father, but then there is Thor, the god of thunder, which maybe is his son. But then as they finally are trying to come across a final version in Snorri's time, uh, somewhere along the line, Odin came into the picture. Actually, Odin's kind of the king and his son is Thor, but Tyr is also very much an important father, king-like figure, right? And, and where yeah. do all these people fit in, right? It's, it's very much things change over time and then you're trying to make sense of all the different traditions. I think that comes back to who, who are we even talking about? We're talking about Rig. Yeah, and it's like I do I, on that point, like I do remember watching some videos. It may, it may have been Jackson Crawford where he talks about like, whether or not Tyr was like initially supposed to be the chief pantheon of this, like of this like series, this collection of gods, and like if that was the case, then what happened for Odin to be the one that we consider the the chief of the Norse pantheon at this point? You know, I think the just with my my little bit of studying of the runes and trying to understand them, like the Tyr rune is very much about you know it's that idea the Sky Father, but kind of like the king who is just you know he makes just decisions and it's, he's a fair king, right? And then Odin is the one seeking the magic power, right? So that because he sought that magic power, maybe he actually does become more powerful than Tyr at some point. But Odin's not like fair or predictable or anything else. Odin's all over the place. He does have more magic power, right? So that's one of my theories. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, insane. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Or should I talk about the social classes idea that was brought up? Since I've gone through the sources and like, I feel like as far as like Norse mythology goes, that's why I'm here. Like, I feel like we can go into your thoughts yeah. On it, but good. Well, because the, the, the topic of social class is very controversial, right? I don't know if anybody had a reaction when Sean's reading through. And this class of people, they're called the slaves and they're called this and that, right? And what he's describing is, right, this is the way they wrote, somebody wrote, right? It wasn't actually even in Snorri's version necessarily, right? But somebody was writing their way of understanding why there are social classes, right? So that to me is very interesting because we kind of know there are social classes, right? Especially for Americans, we don't like to admit that there's social classes, or like the idea, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you can transcend social classes, right? It's, it's a, it raises the question, right? Is your social class your fate or your destiny, right? Can you change it? Or is it that you're in there and that's where you are? And then the myth explains why that's where you are. So just live with your fate, right? That's not a, not a pleasant idea, right? Even in um, like in India, especially, right? The caste system, they're very much known for that. I'm sure there's all kinds of cultures, societies that yeah. have kind of a caste system. But what it led me thinking about, because I go back to this idea, what wisdom can we learn, right? Is it just that we read Riggs Thula and it justifies why there should be social classes, right? Or do we try to find what wisdom is within all of this, right? Because it really doesn't say why they are there. It says something about they get, they get named ugly names and they're, some of their parents are older than others and some different ideas, right? It's very much trying to justify a monarchy, right? That some of these the parents, for whatever reason, when Heimdall lays with them, their children are lords and kings and justifies a monarchy. Um, that's one argument for why it's an older idea, because the Icelanders really didn't care for a monarchy. Yeah. Why did they flee Norway and go live in Iceland? It's like Americans fleeing the king of Britain to go start America. So they they weren't a big fan of kings, probably why Snorri didn't put it in there. But he knew it was an old source that came from somebody writing a poem that the kings liked it when he wrote mm. this poem about why there are social classes. But besides it just being propaganda, right? What else is interesting about it? So it, it reminds me, I'm, I'm listening to a uh, 
Plato's Republic. And I'm not reading the book because it's apparently quite hard to read and there's a lot to it. And there's a, his name's, he goes by Lantern Jack, but he's a doctor who in uh, Greek languages. And so he has a, put it in the show notes, but it's like in, decoding ancient Greek, something like that mm-hmm. is his show. And he's been doing a series on Plato's Republic and he goes through each chapter and he kind of does a little bit like we do, where we sort of summarize it, make it condensed what happens in this chapter of Plato's Republic or this book of it. And then he yeah. brings on another expert because he's kind of an expert, but somebody who's really an expert, like on this chapter or this topic. And so one of the ideas of Plato's Republic is how to create a just society, a society where you don't have a tyrant telling everybody what to do, but you also don't have such a weak uh, democracy, like Greek had at one point, where the Romans can come in and take over your, you know, somebody else who's a tyrant takes you over, right? So yeah. Some kind of a balance. And he explains that what a society needs is the guardian class. So it's the ones who get to be the, the politicians and the soldiers. And so they make sure that everything goes the way it's supposed to go. But then how do you know they won't become tyrants? And Plato's solution, and he, he writes in the words of Socrates, who was his teacher, but it's Plato saying, this is what Socrates would tell you, because Socrates was smarter than me, is that the guardians have to be very well educated. They need to have very good moral character. And you have to start shaping their moral character practically from birth. You only give them the right kind of education, the right kind of uh, plays and stories and things like that to make sure that they will not become tyrants and abuse their power. Right? So there's a, yeah. a lot of hope and faith that that'll work. But one of the myths that he says you should teach the guardian children is, I think somebody says you kind of identify who are the kids that are going to make good guardians. It's not just because their parent was a guardian, they get to be a guardian. So this becomes a psychology idea I'll try to address called uh, your temperament. But you sort of see, do they have a good temperament that they don't seem like they're going to become a tyrant, right? That they'll, they won't try to just like become the ringleader that makes the gang of all the other guardians, hey, follow me guys, and we're going to do something to take over this country, right? But so he says that the myth that needs to be taught to all the children is that we are all brothers and sisters, all created uh, from the earth, from the soil. But then there's something a little bit different about some people. That some people have gold, a little bit of gold dust kind of mixed in among the dirt. Some people have silver. Some people have- Like literal gold dust or yeah. silver? Or, right. Okay. So it's when when maybe the gods, or I don't know how he describes it exactly, are shaping <laughs> yeah. a person out of dust. Because that's in that's in the you know Hebrew and the Christian Bible. That's a little bit in the Norse uh, mythology, right? When the gods are shaping you into a human out of dust, sometimes you get a little bit of gold dust in there, right? When you're getting shaped, maybe there's silver, maybe it's more uh, bronze or, or iron. And he says that's what determines whether you would make would be you know well suited for the guardian class. But he says because you have gold within you, you don't need any more gold. You don't need to own any property. So you're not allowed to own any property. You have a vow of poverty, right? You don't need to be you know seeking out any kind of money or at all. All your needs will be met by the society. And then you lead them and you guard them and you provide for them, right? So that goes back. That's, that's a current political debate. Should senators get to pick and choose their stocks, right? Yeah. No, you have such an honor, such a privilege, all the power to decide our laws. You're taken care of, but you need nothing, right? And none of our senators would probably like that, right? Because they don't have the moral character that says, the most important thing is the welfare of my people. Mm-hmm. I don't need... Anymore. As opposed to like spreading your own influence. Right. I, I, yeah. And I don't even need to, you know, have a yacht and a large house and I don't need to have connected friends and they like wealth. It's like, no, I, I shun and reject all of those things. I have my basic needs met. I get a good uh, livable wage and I will get to make all the decisions and lead the military. Right. And that's the idea. If, if you're taught with those values and that's really your value system, 
that'd be a great person to lead the country, right? So that's his idea. And then if you have the silver within you, you're good for the merchant class. You know, you understand the value of money, but you can try to obtain a little more money, but you don't get to have all the power to choose the laws and run the military because that's too much power. And then the lower class is the workers who, um, you know, they have bronze or um, copper or, or, you know, iron in there, in them. And they, you know, are strong and hard workers and they get to work towards wealth and property. So it's kind of, there's a social class, but it seems to be something's fair about it. Although a lot of people wouldn't like being told that this is who you are and this is your fate and this is all you get to do. Right. Well, yeah. And what are your, what are your goes, reactions to all that, Sean? It's quite a theory. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea that if somebody was like literally kind of, like, I, I guess maybe it's not like they're bred to do this, but if somebody is born and they have, I guess they have the skills and they don't have like the greed that goes into making them like a great politician, regardless of like whatever type of government it is, they should be the one that runs the government. That's like great in theory, but just like every government that actually exists, they're all great in theory, but they all have like these imperfections. And the idea of that means, yes, the greed is not going to influence your government. Like we've seen in the United States government, like there's a debate, as you mentioned, over whether or not they should be able to sell stocks. And from both sides, they're like, no, no, it's it's a free market. You know, we want to we want to conduct our own in, insider trading. That's like the most powerful insider trading of like in the entire country. But like, it's a like it's, it's, it's a just, nice idea. It's a, it's a utopian idea, right? And it goes to if you could do it perfectly, and you knew that they had such a strong moral character, they could not be swayed by a by a tyrant, by a strong man, by anybody persuading them, because they have no wants, they have no desires. They are just happy to lead and do a good job at what they do it's being guarded. Yeah. yeah. But, and so that, that's great. But like in that, in that system, like, and I know we've discussed fate and free will yeah. and like you kind of remove free will from the equation there. And if you are somebody in the lower class, like if you're like somebody in the lower class in that system, like, let's say you want to build a better future for your kids. It doesn't even matter. It, it, it doesn't matter. So like, what's the point? And that goes to, the, um, as I was saying, that, that this is Plato's, he says, it's the mythology you teach the kids from the beginning, so they'll believe it. And maybe they don't believe it 100% true, but it's kind of like their value um, system, right? And in uh, with Norse mythology, right, if that's a story that we teach you that this is your fate and just follow your fate, well, if you believe that, then you kind of try to be good with it. But if you don't believe it, then you try to challenge it, right? So it's you're, you're taught whether you do you have free will or not, right? It's what you believe. It's what you're taught. Yeah. And so like, if you're a, uh, if you're, if you're like an offspring or like, if you're a descendant of, I think it was, um, you know, slave or thrall, you know, freemen or Lord, like one of those three, you have your fate designed for you, which goes into a lot of like what we've already discussed with, you know, Norse mythology, but where this is interesting is whether it's when you consider whether or not this, what this like story was written in the first place, to like say, well, this is how it is. So you should be happy being like a uh, in the lower class of my kingdom in Norway or something like that. So you should be happy with it because it's the way it is. But you have your role in society because like we need you there. We need to have this lower class. Or, or like I also went, my mind went to like, is this what the monarch of Norway or like any monarch says to themselves to make themselves feel better about their system, like screwing over a lot of people. And the poet tells you that that's how it works and that's how Heimdall wanted it. And you're like, ah, that does sound wonderful. Yes, I'll go with that. Right. But (laughs) was it, was it really meant to be propaganda for the the lower class? Right. That's questionable. For the higher class. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then clearly, yeah, the, the, the poem was probably meant for the higher class. A poet would have read it to them, but was that story, a story told to the lower class. But then what it makes me think of is there's all these things in the, between 
the gods and what they do, trying to challenge fate, the heroes and what they do, right? That people, mm-hmm. this idea, right? Transcending class, right? Can you, it's, it's not just on your own choice and free will. It's somewhat is the, the deck stacked against you, right? Is society stacked against you or is there a way to do that? But the, the modern idea that it, it brings up for me is the idea of temperament. Are you familiar at all with that idea, Sean? Like, uh, I know you briefly mentioned it earlier. So it's like their temperament is, is I guess your attitude like at birth or something, or it's like the way that you were designed to yeah. think. And two of, the, two of the features, it's sort of like your pre-personality. So before you've had a chance, because personality is somewhat maybe what you're born with, maybe it's genetic, maybe it's early life experiences, but maybe you develop it somewhat over time. But the idea is personality is somewhat stable. You don't have one personality today and a different personality tomorrow. Most of the time, maybe there's some problems where that happens. Right? Mm. But, but the idea is your temperament is the part that's theoretically just kind of, kind of genetic or very early life experiences. So two of the things that then show up in personality, but that start with temperament are, are you introverted or extroverted, right? Are you kind of fine being with yourself or do you seek outward stimuli? And so I think some of this even comes back from the psychoanalytic traditions. It's not just, you know, later, like, you know, 1970s, 1980s psychology. It was kind of there in the beginning of the 1900s. And the other one is neuroticism. Are you emotionally stable or are you emotionally uh, labile or changing a lot, right? It's a baby that's just kind of easy, happy baby, right? Or a baby that yeah. a little thing sets them off and then very hard to calm down, right? And you just see that when you, when you see children, like they're different, they're not all the same. And then this is like the very uncomfortable part of the theory is if you try to measure, you know, your introversion, your extroversion, your neuroticism, your emotional stability or, or neuroticism, and then try to predict where does that child end up in life, right? Like that's not, not a pleasant thing to think about with goes back. It's a modern psychology theory of what is your destiny. Mm-hmm. And so, and then that's the thing, right? Like, you know that, and then you would be like, well, then that's what this child is destined for, right? That's their, their fate. But maybe there's all kinds of things that could have changed along the way if you didn't believe it was their fate, right? These things where you, maybe you can kind of change personality. Maybe you don't do a whole, whole like 180 flip, but you push it in a direction, which is more more productive in our society, right? So it's nothing about, is that child a good child or a bad child? That's all very judgmental thinking, right? But but our society is structured in a way that says who will be successful, who won't be, right? The deck's stacked against you. But can you change your personality to what you want it to be? Whether you want to fit better or whether you want to just be more yourself or you want to be more of something else, right? It kind of goes back, do you want to be more like Tyr, who is just the fair, just God? Or are you Odin, who seeks eccentric magic power and other things, right? It's... Um, mm-hmm. Is it just that you are one or the other, or you can decide it? That's just the thing I've been thinking about as I read about the runes and, and magic and all these things. Um, what's, what are your thoughts on that, Sean? Kind of, kind of... I have many thoughts on all of that. <laughs> it, it just ties in very well to all of like just Norse mythology with the idea of, of Ragnarok. Like, are we supposed to die at Ragnarok or are we going to do something about it? And then you think about like, in hindsight, is what we did about it, what caused it in the first place. And so like that, that's one of them, but like, I think it's, um, I think like what you're getting on, and this is from like a lay person listening to this for the first time. Like, I'm wondering like how much of this is just like nature versus nurture. And it's like in the environment that you grew up in, like in a modern day, like it could depend on what's expected of you based on the country you live in and based on your status also in that country. But like, you're, you're obviously going to be nurtured to be a certain way by people that were also nurtured to be a certain way with this like other force of nature in just, in just the way that you happen to be born in the way that your brain happens to think. 
and like, and like people are different in so many ways and they're brought up in so many different ways. It just creates this like clash that can affect anything to the point where if you have the societal structure, it's bound to not work in some way, or there's bound to be these glitches. Well, and, the, and you know, it goes back to the, the thing that, um, that Socrates, especially, but also Plato was always trying to do is he, he wasn't giving you the answer. He was giving you the question to ask, right? So yeah. when he says that about this, apparently the way it's written, he describes this myth and then they're like, that sounds terrible or that sounds very hard to actually enforce. And he's like, oh, well, maybe it's a silly idea anyways, right? But maybe it's actually like a beautiful idea, but like you said, hard to actually put it in place, right? But, or maybe it is ridiculous and it's like telling people they don't have free choice. They have to follow the path they were assigned, right? It's really hard to say, right? And that as we're talking about this, right, this, this myth of Heimdall and the social classes, right? Like it's not really even in the, the Bible of the, the uh, uh, poetic Edda and prose Edda. It's the extra page that was in the back that maybe they were trying to figure out if they should fit it in or not, right? It's kind of like the, uh, the Gnostic gospels, if you're into the other things that could have been in the Christian Bible, right? So it shows that the people writing it were trying to like wrestle with these ideas, right? And it's, yeah, I see as we still wrestle with today, right? Like you said, nature or nurture, right? Is it, is your, the genetics nature, is that destiny? Or is the combination you have nature and then nurture, is that actually your destiny? Or can you do all kinds of things to change that? Yeah. And, and one thing I think is very interesting, and I didn't really discuss this when I went through Rigstilla, the lower class family that uh, Hemdahl uh, laid with, let's just, say, let's just say that, laid with, they were great-grandfather and great-grandmother. The middle-class couple was grandfather and grandmother. And I don't think I mentioned this, the upper-class family was father and mother. Yeah. And you see at the end where Hemdahl sort of gets usurped by his grandson, King. And so like, I'm wondering how much of that also describes like humanity's progression from tribalism to like you know, more centralized forms of government, you know, father and mother are going to be better off or like are going to be better off than grandmother and grandfather because grandmother and grandfather probably worked to make a life in like a life better for father and mother. And so I'm wondering how much of this is like symbolism of you being able to kind of like break through and not be resigned to fate. I like that. That's very, that's very profound, Sean. I, I don't think I thought of it that way. But I like yeah, that. but like I don't know. And and that they could, why I love this is like it, you with Norse mythology, you can always like get into this. You can get into like discussions over fate versus free will. Like fate is going to probably affect all of us because we're all going to end up in the same place. And you know, we especially like in this country or like any country in the world, you're going to grow up. You're going to like be born into a certain class, and you may be resigned to that phase unless like you get some form of luck or like hard work, it's like maybe more so luck. Um, but at the same time, you're able to do whatever you want within like with the time you have. Yeah. And it's like, if you are in a position where you can work your ass off, let's, let's say 1500 years ago to like build a farm and, you know, like, build a farm and make it bigger. You're going to make life easier to the point where maybe your the next generations can break through. It's, you know, the, the thought that came to my mind earlier and I almost shared it and it goes back to this idea, like, life wisdom. It's something that I learned. I'm not that old, but in kind of wisdom over time is that phrase, you can do anything you put your mind to, right? And that's a nice thing to tell kids. To say, yeah. Maybe that's a myth to tell kids because they need to hear that for a certain amount of time, right? And then they'll get to a point where they figure out maybe that's not true. But then also it maybe depends, what do you mean by you can do anything you put your mind to? What does it mean to put your mind to something? This comes back to 
Heimdall as your kind of executive function, you're shifting attention, right? It doesn't mean that I can casually think, oh, I'd like to be an astronaut today and, and then I'll get to get there, right? Or I can casually think, you know what, I'm going to switch and change and do something else and I can do that too, right? But if you put your mind to it, if you single-mindedly, all you care about is that and you'll actually sacrifice just about everything else to single-mindedly accomplish that one thing. You can do a great many things that you put your mind to, right? There might be a few limitations that, you know, based on your eyesight or something, you know, you would always get too nauseous to be an astronaut. You're never going to go in space because you would vomit and choke yourself, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's a limitation, right? But then if you got, if you got halfway there anyways, right, you probably got an advanced degree in something trying to become an astronaut, right? So it's, maybe that's okay, right? Um, yeah. But I'm not sure where I was going with it, but it's that idea. I, it, it depends what you mean when you say, you know, because it's, yeah, it's, it's not fair to say, oh, you can do anything you put your mind to. And it's like, well, some people can, but I, you know, couldn't for all these reasons. But to really think about that, really putting your mind to something, right? That single-minded devotion to something, maybe that is powerful too, but that says that it's not easy. You know, if you, if you look at like the social classes of humans, it, it exists everywhere, like to different, to different levels, obviously, but like, there's always going to be this staticness that like the structure or the way it is, is going to be you know, lower class or the way it is like right now before, like, unless like we evolve into something better, it's going to be like lower class, middle class and upper class. But at the end of the day, it's going to be decided like by maybe the upper class that control the people with guns that are telling us what to do or like telling us what we can and cannot do. And like telling us the way that we need to live. So like, I more so think of like, that's why I, I do think of Rigsthola as Hemdal being a part of the upper class but laying out these laws that kind of keep the status quo in his mind, which is a very sinister way to look at it. Um, And it's a very sinister way to think. And at the same time, there's always going to be parties trying to play the game of Thrones to try to navigate their way to like topple it or just get more and more from themselves. And so that goes into your earlier point of just like governments in general. Like if we don't have those, I think you said there were guardians. Is that what it is? Guardian class. That's the idea. Yeah. If we don't have the guardian class and I think we're seeing this in the United States right now, like there's going to be people trying to like change the rules to get what they want for their own influence, their own power, or just to like, um, you know, topple it down to like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's it's very sinister, but it it might be this paternalistic instinct where they think they know what's best for everyone. Right. That's the whole 1980s trickle down economics theory. Yeah, this will be good for everyone. I know best do what I say. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that entirely, you know, just like sinister and sarcastic and not, you know, what's the term talking out of both sides of their mouth? Or do they genuinely (laughs) believe that? And they think that's a good theory. And then it's like, no, you're not, you're not, your eyes are not open to seeing what that actually means. Right. Like that's. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And And it's a good story. It's a good, like, I don't know with that. It's like a good story to tell to say, (laughs) oh yeah, well, it's going to be good if we lower taxes on the rich, you know, like. And again, we're not going to, we're not going to try to get too political here, but like, you know, it's the, the narrative is like painted from the upper class and, and like the way that we're, that the upper class like says we're supposed to live and we're supposed to be happy with it. And so like, if somebody is a farm cleaner, as mentioned, as, as mentioned as one of like Thrall's kids, you know, like, oh, well, this is what Hemdall said I was supposed to be. So I'm fine with it. And it's my fate. It's what the Norns decided. I'm I'm at this level, and that goes back into the the uh, conversations in Norse or the conversations we had in this topic with free will versus fate. You have the free will to potentially get up to the middle class and the upper class if you if you play your cards right and if you get lucky. But if it's not what the Norns decide, Norns decide, then oh well, you know it's it, 
Like it goes to the, it, raises, it raises that question, right? Yeah. Like the, as you say, the barn cleaner is that equivalent kind of to the janitor, but then there are those stories of the janitor who works his way up and becomes the CEO of the company or something, right? Like, yeah, um, it happens sometimes, right? And how much luck is involved, how much hard work is also required. This is maybe a way, this is also a way the Stoics kind of look at it, that fate is going to happen, but you have to see your openings, right? That they might appear. And then you need to do what you need to do to take mm -hmm. advantage of that opening and fate, right? So it's, yeah. that goes back, you have to have your eyes open. You have to be aware when it's an, an opportunity to, that doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get the opportunities or it's, it's all kinds of reasons why you miss them. You know, so I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's like when it comes to faith versus free will, there is a, there is a balance there. And like, everybody does have this like role to play in society and it, it's, it's really fucked up, which is why it's almost good to have guardians, but at what cost if those guardians take away free will? So like, I don't know if, I don't know if I miss that. Like, I know like with like social structure, it's, it's a controversial topic. It's unfortunately something that we've seen in any type of government in any country, whether it's like, you know, a, a, like a mon like a feudalism, like monarch or some, a democracy, there's always going to be those classes, um, or at least there has been up until now, but like, um, I'm thinking maybe someday the... we'll get to Star Trek, but <laughs> Star Trek is yeah. the utopia. Yeah. I mean, it's one the, of them, but the, te the technological utopia. No. And I'm, and I'm thinking back as you're saying, right, the, that the guardian class, they enforce a social order that they believe to be the, you know, and Socrates said it was the right one. So we're going to kind of go with it. Right. But, and maybe it's actually one that, that sounds nice, right? Like people are every, every generation it's, you know, it's not just because your parents, you know, that theory of, uh, they have silver in there, you know, as they were formed out of clay, right. That, that now you get to be, have silver and be a merchant class. It's no, actually, we'll look at your temperament when you're born. And we're trying to, you know, divine and figure out, are you in the silver class or are you in the gold class? Right. And, and maybe just like, I'm thinking about like the Olympic medals. Yeah. Right. Like if you came in first place, you're gold, then silver, if then you, bronze. If you were born right? and you had the gold medal, right. Then you would know for sure. But the, you know, how do you know, but maybe it's something like, you know, seeing that the temperament and as this child starts preschool and they, they know how to share and they know how to do these things. Right. And, oh, they would be quite an equitable leader. Right. Where this um, guy has like Michael Phelps, like long body. So he's going to. He's going to be a guardian. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Right. I'm just trying to think what we would do with that. But then it, it goes back to kind of, we were talking about that idea with like the free market, right? Where it's like, well, I built this company and I want my son to run it. And it's like, well, no, we looked at his temperament and he's not fit to run it. Right. Yeah. And that's what the guardians enforce. Right. So there, there's, there's some freedom for some people, but it's not freedom for everybody to choose whatever they want it to be. Right. So some people will be happy with it. Some people wouldn't be. I think you're saying that that maybe is then sometimes the tyranny of the utopia. Yeah. So Sean, what, what are we going to talk about next episode? Um, so I think we are going to have, we're going to mix it up a little bit. We're going to discuss the first, one of the first parts of the poem Havamal, which we previously discovered. It's also called the Sayings of the High One. A lot of people consider it the, uh, I guess, the Norse code of ethics. Um, it's Odin speaking, and he's giving wisdom or giving knowledge to somebody that we can guess is younger and is listening to an older figure, you know, talk about his experiences and how like he thinks that you should live your life. We might mix that up. We might um, kind of, we might uh, sprinkle that in over the next few episodes. After we do that, we are going to discuss an episode that I mentioned earlier with Odin and another sacrifice he made in order to get the runes. It's it's part of the series of episodes that we have on Odin and his quest for wisdom or lust for knowledge or anything like that. Um, so thanks for listening, everybody. We will uh, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Good night.